This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 1, the author, you know, um, he's tracing out the central storyline of the Bible. And what he's saying is that scripture is not some collection of stories that tells us how God is working. It's not just some collection of stories, but it's one story. It's one story. All the stories. Every story we see represented in these 17 verses spans the whole of scripture and it points to the ultimate story that's central to all of our lives. That's what Matthew's saying. That's why he begins with the genealogy. That's the meaning of it. You know, your genealogy, it tells your story. Today, if you want something to tell your story, we've been saying that you have a resume. Today we have resumes that tell our story. Resumes tell us, you know, I worked at this school. I mean, I studied at this school. I worked at this company. I accomplished these things. But in ancient times, there was no emphasis on what school you went to, what job you held, um, what accomplishments that you as an individual achieved. The focus in the ancient times was on the family, what the family accomplished, how large your family was, how robust your family was, what your family achieved. And so Matthew doesn't begin this story um, with just the birth of Jesus Christ right off the bat. He begins with the genealogy, the family tree. And he says, before you understand the importance, the significance of who Jesus is and what he accomplished, before you understand the central story, you have to first understand the history. 
you have to first understand the family tree, all the stories that point to this central story. In Matthew, like I said, chapter 1, it spans the whole of Scripture, the entire Bible. And what do we learn from this? We learn that the gospel is not about advice, it's history. It's not just a series of good teachings, that we, some good morals that we need to live by. Uh, it's news. It's not just uh, fiction or some form of a legend. These are real historical events. And as a result, the gospel is not just some self-help method. It's not a self-improvement uh, instruction book. You know, there are implications about how we should live, implications about new life or about how to, what, it, what it means to be in community. But, but the real central point of Matthew chapter 1 and scripture is this. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? You know, that he came to live and die for you. It's not good advice. It's not about good advice. It's about news. And so we're going to see three things here in this text, Matthew chapter 1. Three things about Jesus and about this news. One, Jesus is our freedom. Two, Jesus is our healing. And three, Jesus is our access to God. Our freedom, our healing, our access. First, we're going to go into our freedom. Jesus is our, is our freedom. He's our rest. He's our shalom. If you look at the last verse in this passage, I'm just going to read this last verse. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the de- deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 14 generations, uh, and then 14 generations, and then 14 generations all the way to Christ. If you sum that up, you know, it's simple math, 14 plus 14 plus 14, you get 42 generations. What's the meaning of this? Jesus is the last generation. He's that last cycle of seven here. All those numbers are divisible by seven, right? The seventh cycle. In the Old Testament law, here's how it goes. You worked six days, and then you rested on the seventh day. It was a Sabbath. And then you worked six years, And in the seventh year, you were to let the ground, it was an agrarian culture back then, so you let the ground go fallow. You just stopped working for the entire seventh year. And then you worked six cycles of years. And then at the end of that last cycle, the seventh cycle, you rested not only that seventh year, but an additional year, that 50th year. And that year, the 50th year, it was the Sabbath for those seven cycles of Sabbaths. You following me here? That's, it's kind of weird, right? There's a lot of math there, right? But during that time, that 50th year, you're to let the entire, all the land go fallow. The animals are not to work. So the boundary lines of your farms would, would start to disappear. And all, the, all the, the wildlife, you know, what was once tame, the land that was once tame now grows fallow and starts to go wild. It was reminiscent of the Garden of Eden in many ways because what God was doing was he was letting the land rest too. The entire earth was to rest. It was a Sabbath. During that time, if you had slaves, you set them free. And if you were a slave, you were to be set free. If you had a debt, or if someone owed you a debt, you canceled that debt. If you borrowed something and held onto it, and a person is demanding it back, now he's allowed to let you keep it. All the debts are canceled. All the slaves are set free. The land and the livestock are, are, are to roam and to grow wild. 
And we call that a deep shalom, a holistic peace. All wars were to end. There was no more fighting. It was a holistic rest. It was freedom. So what's the point of all of this? The first six cycles, the first six generations of cycles was about work. But that seventh cycle, what Matthew's saying here is, you know, that, you know, that's the 14 plus 14 plus 14. That's the 42 generations, you know, the 42 years. Jesus is that seventh cycle. He is that jubilee. In the Levitical laws, that 50th year, that last cycle, the culmination of all the cycles of work was this Sabbath rest called jubilee. Jesus is that jubilee. He is that whole, perfect, complete rest. He's our jubilee. And with that, that means that all of our longings, everything that you want out of your work, the shalom peace that you hope in your family, in your city, in your world around you, that's what he is. It's not found in a cause. It's found in a person. It's our rest. He is our rest. He is our freedom. Now, if you believe that the narrative of Jesus is not fiction, that it's not a fairy tale, that it's not just a legend, that he actually accomplished salvation for you, you know what that means? That means this. Prostitutes and kings, slaves and masters, they're equal. They're equal in the grace of God. That's what that means. That's freedom for us. Why is that freedom for us? Number one, it marks the end of proving ourselves. It's the end of proving yourself. Think about it. Whether you're a prostitute or a king, whether you are a slave or a master, life can be exhausting if you're living life just trying to please God all the time, just working and working to please God. But the assurance that you found true love, the assurance that you found the knight in shining armor, the assurance that Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia has finally defeated the White Witch and has brought winter to an end. The fact that love and peace has come. The one who's going to make all the wrongs right. The one that's going to heal everything that's broken. The protector of everything that you value. The embodiment of everything that you long for in life. You know what that means? It's deep rest. The shalom of your soul the security that you've been longing for, the righteousness that you pursue. It's freedom. Freedom at last. Jesus' birth, all of your heart's longings, veiled in flesh and veiled in suffering on the cross, has come in full. Has come in full. You can touch him. You can see him. He cares for you. That's peace. That's unity. That's freedom. You know, if you've been burned in your life this past year, if you look back in your year and you look at your failures and you, you know, you, you feel like you've been pursuing relationships, you've been pursuing goals and material things, and, and you thought that these things were going to increase your options and your potential and your freedom and your joy, when in fact you've been bitten on the back end of that, and as a result, your options, your freedom, your joy, your peace has decreased as a result. What does this passage tell us? Don't lose heart. You don't have to lose heart. You know why? Because Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke for it is easy and you will find rest for your souls. That's what he says. He's the only one who can. He's the only one who can. And he will never overwork you and you'll never have to prove yourself. You just need to humble yourself. That's the first point. The second point, Jesus is our healing. He's our freedom. Now he's our healing. Genealogies, they tell us about the real life struggle 
to arrive at this concept, you know, the generational struggle to achieve this concept of happily ever after. Every great fictional story, if you think about it, every great story, you know, commentators, critics have been writing about this for ages. Why do these stories resonate with us? Think about it, a couple examples, you know, because there seems to be this human longing that fiction satisfies that, that nonfiction right now is not able to satisfy. That's why these stories resonate with us. Let's take fairy tales, Sleeping Beauty, classical American fairy tale, Beauty and the Beast, classical fairy tale, the undoing of the curse, and it's only accomplished by true love. If that's too childish for you, for you Broadway lovers, Phantom of the Opera, true beauty, showing compassion to the wicked and the despised, the rejected. Superman, a savior from another world who steps into earth, who steps into our reality. Spider-Man with great power, with great responsibility, it's veiled, disguised in humanness, in the everyman. And then you have, of course, the ultimate example of that, Lord of the Rings, if you've ever read that trilogy. You know, you see the power of idolatry. You know, you see that in the ring. But then you see ultimate victory. And where is ultimate victory represented? In that scruffy-looking person in the back of the pub. But behind the veil of that scruffy-looking man, are 51 generations of royalty backing him up. He's the heir to the throne. You look at anti-aging infomercials, matchmaking commercials, every great story, they all come with testimonies, right? Every great story contains themes that resonate with our hearts. That's why they get you, that they have not been satisfied, that we're under a curse, that we're under enchantment, the concept of love never forsaking you, never parting you, the concept that you'll never age. Where does that come from? That one day you'll be able to fly, triumphing over evil, triumphing over death. Magic, deep magic, all these things. You know, if these stories are well told, you're going to find them moving. You're going to find them satisfying. Why is that? Because deep inside, there's a longing to believe that we're not meant to die. Deep inside, there's a longing to believe that we're never going to age, that this, this, this aging is unusual for us. It's an enemy. Deep inside, we're meant to defeat death. That we're meant to, tr- that, you know, that love, that triumph will always win in the end. And these stories stir something very deep underneath that our hearts long to believe are real and are true. You know, your mind says no. Let's be realistic. Critics write and say no. Don't fall for these traps. We struggle to believe because it makes us feel like, you know, we're escapists or something. But what does a genealogy here tell you? Here's Christmas. Someone from heaven actually broke in into reality. Someone who beholds power beyond our imaginations. You know, he can, he can calm the storm with a word. He can heal with a touch. He performs miracles. The story of sacrifice for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. You know, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. That we're meant to defeat death that we're intended for life and life everlasting. That love, that there's, you know, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than somebody who gives his life for his friends. That's love. Valiant death. Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, and he says, Father, take this cup from me, but not by my will, 
Let your will be done. Valiant death. The story of valiant death. Heroic death. Remember Braveheart? The movie Braveheart in the 90s? You know, he, he's chained up. He's locked up in prison. And the, uh, the queen, the princess, comes to him and, and provides with, for him an elixir. He says, just take this for me. Just take this. It's going to dull your pain and it's going to dull your sense. And he says, what? It will dull my wits as well. And for her, you know, she takes, he takes it, but then after she leaves, he spits it out. We look at that. We say, such courage, such sacrifice. Why does that move us? Why does that get us? It's because we believe there's deep in our hearts, there's a longing to know that these things, all these things are true. And that's why, number one, you know, our suffering Our suffering is valid, our suffering is real, but our suffering also, although it would have an end, there's meaning in the suffering today because where where would heaven be and what would heaven be like, you know, if you didn't have things like courage because you wouldn't have courage without suffering? Where would heaven be if you didn't have suffering, valiant death, courage, sacrifice? These things on earth mean suffering for us. But these are things that we celebrate and we love because deep in our hearts it tugs at a longing in our souls. The gospel, we have to remember, you know, um, is it looks like a Christmas story. It looks like, I mean, it looks like another story that points to one of these realities that, that we long for, that we believe has gone unsatisfied. But if you remember the Gospels, you know, they were verifiable documents. These were written accounts that were verifiable, almost like court-ordered documents. And um, this genealogy then represents a history. It represents, it's a family tree, right? So it's history. It's more than just news. These are, these are events that have taken place throughout history. And, and it doesn't begin with once upon a time, Right? Jesus is not just another story pointing to the underlying reality, but his story is the central reality to which all the history, all these other stories loosely point to. That's the genealogy. It happened, and our hearts long for it. Our hearts sense it, that he came from the heavens, punched a hole into reality, and came down for us. Now, the reason why these stories resonate is that deep inside, we believe we are under enchantment. Deep inside, we do believe that we're under a curse. Deep inside, we believe that one day a perfect prince will come. That's why we have such a fascination for heroes. That one day a hero will come and he will restore and he will rescue. One day everything that's broken will be healed. One day everything that's frozen will fall. If you read the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, these children enter through this magical wardrobe and they enter into this new world. And here you have um, Mr. Tumnus, one of the creatures in this new world, explaining to them that the entire world that he lives in is under a curse. But then he says, but, and he looks and he he points to the trees and he sees that the ice is starting to thaw out because the whole world is under this curse, under the curse of the white witch and everything as a result is frozen. That's the curse. And he says, but look, spring is coming. A savior has arrived. Even though all these stories, you know, are not factual, you know, the ones that we read, like the Chronicles of Narnia, they're not factual, they're not true, the narrative of Jesus subsumes them all. He encompasses them all because he is real. He is true. If a child asks you, you know, uh, you know if I can fly in heaven, there's no record of flight in the Bible, human flight in the Bible, 
But if a child reads this book and says, you know, gosh, I wish there was a noble prince because I want to be a princess, you know. You always hear that with little children, you know, little girls. And I, I wish there was a noble prince. I wish I could fly, something like that. You can inspire even greater hope for that child because there is. There is a noble prince. These stories are true. Jesus Christ the Almighty was born in a manger. He was born humble with 42 cycles of generations of royalty. And, he's, and we're waiting for that. That's confidence. That's power. That's the noble prince. And he's going to restore everything that's broken in the world, even death. Angels, it says in the Bible, are longing to look into these things. Angels are longing to look into the gospel. Now, what does that mean? What that means is you don't have to beat yourself up over mistakes that have cost you. You know why? When you, when you beat yourself up, it's because you've been pursuing this ideal. You know, you think that by going for wealth, you're going to earn security. You're going to gain security. That's your prince. That's the noble prince that you're fighting for. You think if you can just get that one beautiful woman or that one career-minded, handsome man in your life, it's going to undo all the wrongs that have happened in your life. It's going to undo all the brokenness. That if I can just have that relationship, it's going to give me a love that's never going to forsake me. That's your prince. That's your prince. And you know what we do? We pay a huge price for those princes in our lives. We try to find happily ever after. And it goes unresolved. So much disappointment. It becomes cosmic. It becomes spiritual in nature. Happily ever after when you're trying to craft that story on your own. But look at what the angels, look at what the angels long to see. Jesus is the embodiment of every one of our ideals. He means beauty. There's beauty. There's intimacy. There's love that will never forsake you. There's sacrifice for you. That's your measure of worth. We have to plug into his story. What the Gospels teach us here, what Matthew chapter 1 teaches us is that you don't just look at it as a narrative that's true. You have to plug into it. Just as these 42 generations, these cycles of generations have plugged into the story. If you read every one of their stories, it's really just a plugging into the central story. The central story of Jesus. That's what we need to plug into. So Jesus is our freedom. <clears throat> Jesus is our freedom. And he's the embodiment of all of our ideals. So he's our healing. It heals the deep longing of our souls. Lastly, Jesus is our access. Back then, you know, people fudged with their family tree, just like today we fudge our resumes. Everybody understands the concept of people who fudge their resumes. You know, today if you worked in company A and you failed or you lost your job and you join company B and you do pretty well at company B, there's a greater than likely chance that you will keep company A off your resume. That's what you're going to do. Um, you treat it as a false start of sorts. You know, in resumes, you tend to leave out the parts that don't make you look good. That's what a resume does today. In ancient times, you did the same thing, but with your genealogies. It was known that Herod the Great literally excised people from his family tree because he didn't want to associate his name with certain people in his lineage. But the beauty of this text is that Jesus doesn't do that at all. Jesus doesn't do that at all. In fact, he emphasizes the brokenness. He emphasizes the failures. 
He emphasizes all the black spots. There are amazing things about this genealogy. It's, un, it's unlike any other in ancient history. You know, one, a couple things I'm going to call out. First, there are women in it. <laughs> in the ancient times, you didn't put women in your genealogies because women had very little to no social standing. A woman's, uh, a woman's witness or testimony was not even admissible in court during these days. Women were marginalized simply or purely on the basis of their gender alone. Next, most of the women that are represented, there are five women represented in this passage, but most of them are Gentiles. They were not part of God's chosen people. And so, um, you know, you have examples like Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth, whom we studied a few weeks ago, Ruth was a Moabite. In fact, she was part of an enemy neighbor, an enemy country of God's people. These people would never be allowed in the holy place. They would never be allowed in the temple. They were racial outsiders. So these people have been, you know, we have examples in this genealogy of people who would not be admitted to the temple. They would not be a part of God's people in that sense. They were, they were racial outsiders. Uh, they, were, they were gender outsiders, social outsiders, cultural outsiders, but they were also moral outsiders. Matthew goes out of his way to mention some of the darkest, darkest episodes of the Bible. Tamar, whom he studied, she had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. She tricked Judah, her father-in-law, into sleeping with her. And that leads to the birth of Christ. That's verses 1 to 3. Matthew could have left out Tamar. He could have left out even Judah, but he doesn't. He wants you to see the whole story. Creation, fall, redemption. That's what he wants you to see. There's absolute confidence of God's intentionality in the episodes, the darkest episodes in this text. Rahab. Rahab, this Canaanite woman, so culturally an outsider, was a prostitute, a moral outsider. Now, he mentions King David, great King David, perhaps one of the greatest figures in the Old Testament. Great to mention King David, but he mentions right alongside King David two figures, Bathsheba and and Uriah. In fact, he doesn't even mention Bathsheba He calls her Uriah's wife. Right after mentioning David, he mentions Uriah. He mentions Uriah after David. The name conjures up the very, you know, you have this great king. But the reason why he mentions the king is to mention Uriah. Mentioned right after him. Because this was the moment, the episode, the narrative where David conspired, cheated, schemed. He was immoral and he murdered. And he murdered just so they could preserve himself. You see the selfishness of David. Uriah, he's one of the great friends of David. He helped David rise to the throne. He was considered one of David's mighty men. He risked his life for David, but to cover over an affair and the pregnancy right after, David arranges to have Uriah killed. And Matthew includes the reminder. Matthew intentionally includes this reminder. He doesn't slight Bathsheba. He slams David. He slams David. Throughout the genealogy, you see moral and cultural and racial and social outsiders. The law of Moses would have excluded these people from God's presence. You would not be allowed in the temple. Yet, they are included in the first chapter of the Gospels, the genealogy of the birth of Christ. Why? These people would have been excluded by the law They would have been excluded by the world. They would have been excluded by society. But here's Jesus. He says, you are acceptable. You can be acceptable. 
you are brought in. It doesn't matter who you are. Grace, it's not like God just pours out a little bit of grace, just enough to cover over our weakness and failures and flaws. But it's so abundant. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. Grace can cover over that and more. You know, if Matthew intentionally included these people in the genealogy, what is he saying? He's saying you can't get worse than these people. You can't get worse than them. Adultery, incest, prostitution, corruption, murder. If these people can be brought in, then anyone and everyone can be brought in. That's what that teaches us. Now, it also teaches us that the best of the best in our family lineage can be inferior. Look at David. David the king is mentioned here. But he's mentioned, mentioned for the purpose of, of showing that even the best of us can be inferior when you view somebody through the lens of grace. So the gospel equalizes David and Bathsheba. The gospel equalizes Lazarus and the rich man, the rich and the poor. The gospel equalizes the Pharisee and the tax collector, the moral and the immoral, all because of grace. In him, not even the greatest of us can earn grace, and through him, not even the lowest of us will be excluded by his grace to receive grace. The moral and the immoral, we're all the same. A prostitute and a king will sit down in the banquet halls of God's grace. An amazing thing. Each verse of this text, dripping with the grace of God. Not even kings have anything on you. That's what this text is saying. The world may value class. The world may value race or ethnicity or language or money or power or status or the type of relationship you're in, but not God. God does not value those things. How do you get it? How do you get it? Now, family trees are important to help us to understand Jesus' essential story. But in Hebrews chapter 2, the author writes that Jesus, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. In other words, we are a part of that story. We have the opportunity to plug into that story, into his lineage. What is it about his lineage? Who is Jesus? Jesus, greatness becomes weak. That's Christmas. The Almighty becomes a baby. Greatness has become weak. Greatness has become great through his weakness. And that's going to shape our view of power. That's going to shape our view of money and our wealth and greatness. The Prince of Peace, Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Shalom. He's working on the cross. On the cross, he's laboring. He says, I'm the ultimate rest. He's moaning and he's groaning. He's suffering and he's laboring. He's struggling even to breathe on the cross. The embodiment of all of our heart's longings, the picture of all of our ideals. He says, I am truth. I am life. He's homeless. He's friendless. He gets arrested. And on the cross, he says, I am mocked. I am shamed. I am abandoned. That's what he says. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And yet he says, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. You've forsaken me. I've been abandoned not just by other people, but by you, but by the Father, by God himself, so that we could become heirs, so that we could be called brothers. That's redemption. That's our hope. You've got to plug into the story. You've got to look at your suffering and plug into his suffering. 
You gotta look at the blessing and plug into him as the blessing. You gotta look at the beauties in your life and plug into the beauty that is Christ. All those things pale in comparison to the ultimate beauty. All your suffering, plug it in and connect them with his suffering. That's what it calls us to do. On the cross, all power becomes weak so that you through him might have power, real power, real power. All fullness becomes emptied so that we through his poverty might become rich. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Jubilee himself labored on the cross so that you would have deep shalom. You know, Jesus wept on the cross. My God, my God, he says. Whenever you see those two, the doublet there, repeated there, he's pouring out with emotional content. He's weeping on the cross as he says, I've been forgotten, I've been forsaken. Why? So that we could be accepted and we would have joy. He was homeless, he was forsaken, he was friendless, he was abandoned so that we could be brought in, we would have a place, we would have a father, we could be accepted. That's access. Religion says you have to work to earn access. The gospel says don't trust in your works, trust in his work. Don't trust in your record, trust in his record. Don't trust on your mer- in your merit, Live in life on the basis of Christ's merit for you, all by, by grace. That means you've got to plunge your pursuits, plunge your failures, plunge your success, plunge your suffering, plunge your joy, your loneliness, your fullness, all in the grace of God. Plug into that story, and he will enliven you into greater richness for his sake and for your good. That's freedom. That's joy. That's access. Do you believe it? Will you plug into that story this year, this coming year? Will you do that? Because it's all by grace. The story of Christmas, all by grace. Do you believe it? Let's pray.